Hi, this is James Governor, uh, co-founder of Redmonk, and we're here for another conversation with Redmonk. We're talking about uh, NLP and LLMs and all that good stuff that we're all getting really, really excited uh, about today as an industry. Uh, lucky enough, luckily enough, uh, today I have somebody that's been involved um, in AI and machine learning for some time, uh, Malt Peach, uh, the co-founder of DeepSet. Um, and we're going to talk a bit about what's going on uh, from a um, from an industry perspective and probably from an enterprise adoption perspective. So uh, welcome, Malta. Good to see you. Hi, James. Good to see you. Thanks for having okay. me. So um, let's jump off. Here's the thing that, 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 that is really worth thinking about, I think, which is the explosion of interest, certainly in large language models. I mean, two years ago, they were a thing. Now they're the thing. And I think that's been part of this this whole change. But I had a brilliant story um, told me by uh, Rachel. Rachel Stevens, one of my colleagues, yesterday. And she said, I have not yet tried chat GPT, but my mother has. And I said, pardon? And so uh, her, her mother, um, basically, they had a, a built-in microwave oven, uh, built into so a particular size, built into a cabinet. And when it broke, um, they just sort of, it, they didn't know what to do. And Google could never help them find the correct measurements that would fit in to this space. And so they'd sort of given up, given up hope. And then one day, Rachel's mother hears about ChatGPT. So gets herself an account, is lucky enough to get access. As Rachel says, I keep on, you know, not being able to do that. And, um, and oh, no, there was one they found, but I think the, the, the microwave oven that fitted it was $1,300. And I, I think her mother said, I would rather not have a microwave oven than pay $1,300 for one. And, and if you know Rachel and you know her affinity for spreadsheets and her affinity for compliance and finance, I, I could definitely see a bit of a similarity. Anyway, her mother said, no way. Until she got to chat GPT within half an hour, and she made it. She she made a, a, a query. Um, it didn't come up with what she needed. Then she came up with some term that involved the the type of cabinet or enclosure. And sure enough, something pop, popped out. They've ordered a new microwave for um, uh, I think about two hundred two hundred fifty dollars, and everyone's happy. Oh well. But but to live in a world where um, a technology that was considered esoteric, even six months ago is now something that our mother is using. And uh, by the way, I hate the, it's so easy even my mother could use. That's not the point of the story. The point is, you know, leading edge adopters are coming from all sorts of spaces. Um, I think we, you, you've got some interesting stories about that. Um, the sorts of people that are asking questions about their, their business. But yeah, so one of the ways I've been thinking about AI is here comes everybody. And that was a brilliant example of that. And I think, why do you think what's happening now that has changed the game? Sort of what what is it that's making people? What is it that's why is why is AI more tangible now? Yeah, I mean, it's really crazy, uh, like what kind of development we saw over the last year. And I think, yeah, to some degree, it's there were also like advancements on the technology side. So yes, like models became better, performance became better. Yeah. 
I still think it's like it's not really the reason like for what we see or what we've seen in the last months that this awareness, this explosion of interest. It's not because I don't know GPT or any other model became just better on the performance side. I think it's mostly because uh, it became easier to experience what it means to have NLP, to have like this kind of language interaction. Um, and this is, I think, something that OpenAI did in a very great way, like having really an easy interface that you can explore, you can try out, you can experience this kind of technology. So it uh, became easy for uh, Rachel's mom to try it out. And actually, same thing happened with my mom. Like, uh, I think I, I tried to explain to her what I'm doing for five years now. <laughs> Never really succeeded. Um, but now she comes like, I don't know, Christmas and says, ah, yeah, yeah, I tried this this chat GPT and I read in the newspaper about it, like, is this what you're doing? And it's like, yeah, yeah pretty much. Um, uh, so yeah, I think it just really helps people to understand, like touch it basically, right? It's, if you talk about, I don't know, mm -hmm. some code, some models, some APIs, that's very abstract for, for most users. Um, but the moment you've you got a word for that, you've got a, you've got a crafty little word for that, haven't you? That making it more, yeah, more haptic. Like you can really, you can touch it. You can almost see, like you can feel how it's uh, how NLP, uh, yeah, like works. And um, it's not something you write down, but you really experience it firsthand. And I think these haptics basically uh, changed. I would say on this like user experience side, like you yeah. can you, know, you can really play around with it. You get can kind of spark your own imagination. What you what this might mean maybe for your own business, for your own use cases. Um, it also I think also they have to exchange on the workflow side for developers. So it's way more easier to build, I don't know, a fast demo, spin something up, share it with colleagues. And I think all of that is kind of yeah, accelerating right now the uh, the interest in it. We have some uh, other stories like this. Um, quite many people reach out to us these days. And uh, I would say one, one example that <laughs> stuck with us was a few days before Christmas. Um, you can imagine a uh, family business in Germany more than 100 years old, really a market leader in their segment, um, reinvented themselves quite a few times over the last 100 years. And there was this owner, like a uh, very seasoned professional, not a technologist, but really expert in his field, um, probably in his like 80s. And he was like uh, reaching out, out to us and, uh, and, and saying basically, hey, guys, like I, I saw ChatGPT and this seems really revolutionary. Like this, this will disrupt my business. Like it's, it feels to me like this is like 2000s uh, when internet came. Uh, mm -hmm. I need to act like, what should I do? How to, can I get this basically into my product, into my offering? And we kind of started this conversation. And um, I mean, for us, that I think was interesting because when we started DeepSet five years ago, the early days, it was a lot about talking to early adopters, to technologists. But now these kind of conversations happen more often where it's business owners or managers seeing, hey, like, okay, this is what NLP can do. Mm -hmm. It sparks the interest and they do this translation to, okay, what does it mean for my business? How will it impact me? And I think this is what kind of changed in the last year. Sense of urgency too. Didn't he demand that your co-founder that had just had a baby and uh, and, and it was like a couple of days before Christmas had to be in a different city within two days. There was, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was basically already on 
parental leave because the baby was just born. <laughs> um, two days before Christmas, everyone was like just busy with finishing stuff before the holidays. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, then you have this opportunity and, and of course you will jump on it. And um, uh, that was definitely like worth it and uh, interesting to explore them uh, with this, this person, like how and where NLP makes sense in, in their product. Yeah, lo- lo- love that story. Love that story. Um, so we're, 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 it's a much broader funnel um, in, in terms of interest. Um, uh, you know, I think maybe there's an assumption now that everything works just like ChatGPT does, um, which is good, but not always good, because ChatGPT does have a tendency to what they call hallucinate, where it will basically just tell you something with a strong sort of confidence. Oh, yeah, this must be right, because this computer has gone out and you know has a huge data set, and it's been able to want to pull this together. The text sounds really convincing. But it's nonsense. And apparently, in businesses like legal or um, finance with contracts or medical and so on, hallucination is not considered quite such a good thing. Yeah, I mean, this is like a big problem. And um, as I said, I think like with all this awareness, first of all, there's also a lot of noise. Like you also need to separate, okay, what is now really possible? What is meaningful? What really then? creates value at the end um and then yeah i think it's a lot also about assessing risks and uh failure modes and i would say the most prominent one is for sure hallucinations mm-hmm. and um yeah this i think the the big problem is really that llms are wrong from time to time and then they're confident about it so it's not very easy to spot like the model would come up with a lot of arguments like very well formulated explanation why this and this and that happened um so for example if you uh, if you ask uh, gpt um did silicon valley bank collapse it will most likely say no or uh, make up some uh, some some weird story how it you know collapsed in financial crisis 2009 and bring a lot, up a lot of arguments um we had this case i think last week in a in a demo um so I think people. Well, I, think, I mean, know. given that we're in an industry of tech people, the idea that they would say things and have arguments for them that were strong arguments whilst being completely wrong, I mean, you know, it doesn't make it any different from us, as far as I can see. But, 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 yeah, there are sectors where that's uh, a problem. And yeah, what, and what it just it? makes it very hard to spot, right? So you can basically not really trust, um, and you really have to double check every kind of prediction that comes from these these models. Mm-hmm. And it, it depends a lot on the use case. If it's I mean, if it's I don't know doing a first draft of a contract, it maybe is similar to I don't know, a legal junior lawyer that does it, and then you still check it, perfectly fine. But what if you have a, a customer-facing application? Um, will your customers really spot then uh, these hallucinations and mistakes? And um, yeah, I think this is like where we are right now. Invest a lot of time working with customers to, to basically figure out how can you spot them and how to actually also reduce these hallucinations. Okay, so would you have like a tool set for doing that with your with your customers? Is that is that what you're establishing? Um, yeah, I mean, like there are in the in the industry already, I would say a few options, a few tools that you can use. One that um, well, played very well for us, and uh, we have good experience with this um, uh, retrieval augmentation. 
So mm. basically the idea of, um, let's take a plain, plain vanilla LLM. There you would just put in your text, your prompt, like what you see in ChatGPT, just the text. And then the model would kind of query internally its, its own knowledge, its own parameter and spit out the answer. And the idea of retrieval augmentation is basically that you connect your language model to some uh, data set, some database, let's say document store. Mm -hmm. And when you ask a question, the model kind of first gets relevant piece of information, relevant documents, um, and then uses that as a foundation for, for generating the answer. So all the generations the LLM will come up with are based on your documents and like a subset of these documents. And this really helps to kind of ground the language model on facts, on actual information on these documents. Yeah. Um, it also helps with explainability because you can always then kind of trace back uh, and say, oh, like this is the answer that got generated. What okay. kind of documents were used for that? Okay, but so on the retrieval augmentation side, though, I mean, one of the uh, certainly one of the potential concerns is, hang on a minute, if we just all spend all of our time making OpenAI better, then you know, then we're what's our advantage? If I'm the you know, the German dude in his eighties, sort of thinking he's got an information business and he he doesn't want to throw all of that into a third party platform necessarily. So in terms of retrieval augmentation. I mean, what, yeah, you know, what is the concern or what are the approaches people can take um, in order that they can maintain or at least have a, a hope of some kind of moat? Yeah, I mean, we are mainly talking and working with enterprise customers and they are, I would say, everything around data serenity, data privacy is, is obviously a big theme. Um, it is for retrieval augmentation where you have your kind of documents connected to the LLM, but it's also in, I would say, any a more general use case uh, where it might be just querying the uh, the um, OpenAI uh, REST API. So in all of these cases, I think it's then there are use cases where the data is critical, the queries are critical, but you ask these models and you simply cannot uh, send them to an external provider like like OpenAI, and often they can't even leave your network. Um, so yeah, we, we definitely from a legal perspective, they can't. So yeah, yes, from simply from a legal perspective, and I mean like yes, there are definitely use cases also in the enterprise where this is possible. But what we see is usually that there is always a mix, and for some use cases, um, that it's simply not possible. It's uh, they are under some restrictions. Um, this data is high highly sensible. Um, we talked about uh, the one one example already. There's, I don't know, plenty of others from uh, private equity firms, from banks, from aircraft manufacturers who who simply say, "Hey, like we know we have a few use cases for that OpenAI, perfectly fine, but mm -hmm. actually there's also maybe more more interesting one closer to our core business. But for those, no, like." This won't happen. We can't uh, give out that data, <laughs> and um, so I would say that kind of the the data that is underlying a use case always dictates what kind of model you can choose. And and this is, I think, right now in the situation we are in um, for for enterprise use cases. And uh, what also yeah, makes me believe that the future won't be a, like a monopoly, <laughs> like a model monopoly. Let's say, um, so if you think maybe back in like December, January, February, at least I felt like, wow, 
OpenAI is going to to dominate the world and mm -hmm. uh, dominating at least the kind of model game. Um, I think by now the dust has settled a bit, and I, at least I can see it a bit clearer now, like my perspective on it. Um, and well, it's funny because it, there's more dust, I think. I mean, there's just so much going on. Every week there's more stuff. I mean, you know, if we look at what's been happening with the local, the local open source models, um, like Llama uh, and so on, there's, there's just so much going on. Yes, yes, it's, uh, it's insane to follow, um, uh, but also very yeah, cool to see, like, especially on the open source side right now, mm -hmm. how fast and how powerful the open source community is as well. So I think they really picked up pace after ChatGPT was released and a lot of labs, like research labs on the US side, but also company side, just started to kind of training models, kind of recreating alternative, creating alternatives basically to, to this closed source proprietary model of, uh, of OpenAI. So we have uh, yeah, Lama, you already mentioned, there's Alpaca from Stanford, which got released based on, on Lama. There's Dolly from Databricks, um, also like a very small model, but recreating most of the ChatGPT experience. Um, there's, I think just the, two days ago, there uh, was Vicuna released from another group okay. of like UC Berkeley, Stanford, CMU, I think. Um, so there's a lot of, lot of development right now. And I'm sure there are even more research labs right now and teams working uh, uh, on training uh, similar models. Um, and I think the interesting part is that training many of these models is not as expensive as one might think. So um, the ones that I mentioned uh, all based on Llama, but then the important part, the fine-tuning part, uh, just costed uh, around, I think, $300, $400. It's, it's not not the same budget you need for right. for training uh, uh, such a So now, now OpenAI is going to be disrupted. Is that is that what you're telling us? <laughs> no, I think like it will stay. I think they are definitely on a good track. But I think this market, maybe a bit like the cloud market, there will be mm -hmm. different different segments, and people will um, will find I think their spot. Okay. And I don't think that OpenAI will just rule all of them because they don't they can't cover all these enterprise requirements that we yep. that we discussed, like data sovereignty. I think not what what they will ultimately um, uh, rule. So. I think as a as a company, you have good reasons to uh, to be more like multi-model, um, similar to multi-cloud, uh -huh. and uh, and be kind of agnostic and say, okay, we have maybe some use cases that will go to OpenAI, make sense there. For others, maybe performance as well is better with other models, or because of data reasons, we go for for something more local. Um, and um, yeah, I think there's this is how I would see the future in so, one year from now. So we haven't really spoken at all about DeepSet. We've talked about the market as a whole. You came out of the world of, of natural language processing. That's the, the thing that you've really, really been working on um, with a, an open source project called Haystack. Where does that fit into this world? If I'm a developer or, or an 88-year-old you know, German businessman, why, why should I come to your website? Why should I find out what you're doing? What what's your role in in this world? Yeah, and I love it slightly business, but definitely from a developer perspective, you know, where and why should I bother trying to find you? Yeah, so we have both we have both products, Haystack on the open source side, DeepSet Cloud on the uh, commercial side. 
So Haystack is basically targeting what we call pragmatic builders. So it's a developer framework written in Python. Um, and we're not targeting researchers, but rather people who say, hey, like, I want to build this application. I want to get NLP in my, uh, into my product. And it basically helps them to connect all these underlying technologies that you need for it. So to really ship NLP, you need models, yes, but there's also much more like uh, databases, vector DBs, for example, is a mm -hmm. uh, common thing. Um, you need to uh, kind of assemble pipelines to take your raw documents, pre-process them, clean them, put them in this database. You need pipelines or now also coming up like agents to really deal with your query, resolve it and, and give the answer. So it's all about basically assembling those underlying technologies into a real NLP application. And um, this is basically what, uh, what's at the core of Haystack, that you can do all of that in a very fast way. And you don't need to place any early technology bets. So you can start building a prototype with, I don't know, vector DBA. Uh, and then later, when you move to production, you realize, oh, like maybe I, I need to switch it to another vector database and the interface won't change. Your application logic won't change. You can easily kind of swap them out. What you're effectively saying is you you actually you yourself see yourselves as a good place to get started because you're not locking yourselves into a particular technology vis-a-vis um, -vis database model and so on. Yes, you get started quickly and uh, you can basically really focus on building your application rather than writing all these kind of glue code from, I don't know, this technology component to another one. So the focus is really on, on what you want to build with NLP. And yeah, this is basically on the, on the open source side on Haystack. Um, on, uh, on, on DeepSet Cloud, um, this is basically uh, our um, commercial end-to-end -end developer platform. So not just a Python framework, but really a developer platform targeting enterprise use cases. Mm -hmm. And there it's a lot about collaboration. So if you think about developing traditional software, uh, it's I think it also changed a lot over the last 20 years from waterfallish processes to yep. more iterative, more agile, allowing collaboration between different types of developers. And the same thing is needed for, for basically NLP applications. There we still are in a quiet waterfally uh, development flow often. And with DeepSet Cloud, we basically break this and say, hey, here is here's how you can build a fast demo in, I don't know, an hour. You can share it with end users to really collect feedback and understand if this is going in the right direction. You can collaborate between data scientists, between DevOps, between um, other engineers to really kind of ship fast and iterate on it. Okay, so, so, you've, so there you go, back for, to the beginning. So what you're saying is DeepSec Cloud, haptic AI. You've got that, that iteration, the ability to feel it, touch it, um, uh, and, and so on. Um, okay, good. We're going to be doing a webinar as well, um, which is, a, I, I think, we're going to you know, wear, our, wear our suits and ties. Well, not, not really. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, that was great. Uh, thank you very much. That's a Redmond conversation. It was good to get into some of the technical stuff there at the end. Uh, Malta Peach, thank you so much for joining us. That's another Redmond conversation. Thank you, James. Thank you.